of you, maybe all of you, I don't know, will be familiar with the concept of the bucket list. If you haven't seen the movie, it's a movie with Jack Nicholson and Morgan Freeman, in which these guys are headed toward the end of life, and before life is completely over, there are some things they want to get accomplished, and that becomes their bucket list. And so they put things on there that they want to get done, say, we're going to, before we go, these are the things we're going to try and get accomplished. Some of you have probably written a bucket list, or at least have thought about things like that. But today, right now, at the pew in the back, uh, the back of the pew in front of you, there's a piece of paper and a pen, and I want you to make a bucket list right now. You can put three items on it, five items on it. I'll give you a few minutes to do this. What are the things that you want to get accomplished before you leave this world? Now, the kids are in here today. We don't have youth assembly. So the kids are in here. And so maybe the kids could even write out some things that they want to get accomplished before they die. Like if you're in the fifth grade, you're going to say, get through the fifth grade. Get through the sixth grade. Get a new bike. Whatever you want to put. Okay, what's on your bucket list? What do you want to get accomplished before you leave this earth? Who's got more than one item so far? Some of you do? Good. Excellent. Another minute or so. Jump out of an airplane with a parachute. Scale Mount Everest. Yeah, Ratna's probably done that. She's from Nepal. See the Rough Riders win the Great Cup again? Some of you will be dead before it happens. All right, the reason we did that is because today we're looking at the topic of discipleship at the end of life. We've done a long series on discipleship, asking the question of what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? And I don't know exactly how to approach this question. When we say discipleship at the end of life, and I should say months ago we developed this topic and this list of themes that we're dealing with, and I don't know exactly what to do with this. Are we talking about discipleship as we approach the end of life so that we've got 15 years to go and how am I going to spend my retirement years? Or are we talking about someone who says, I've got six months I know that in six months I'm not going to be here any longer. What am I going to do with those six months? Or it could be somebody who said, I've got six minutes. Maybe you didn't know this. What do you want to get accomplished? Because this could come on you real suddenly, and I hope that you've done some planning before that if it's going to be six minutes. We should be thinking about these things because the fact is we don't ultimately know when this is going to happen. And so there is a sense in which, even this morning, every one of us is facing death right in the face. You know, you may not even make it through this sermon, especially if it's as long as the one last week. So you may not make it through. We better have some plans in place for what it's going to be like as we head toward the end. And that's because all of us are going to face Him someday. We are going to face God. What are we going to do in light of facing God? So it's not just a question of what am I going to do with my retirement years. It's also a question of what are we going to do as we go through our retirement years actually in anticipation of seeing God 
it's actually quite an assumption, actually, to think that we're going to have years before this happens. And there could be someone here who is 14. And the 14-year-old isn't thinking that it's going to be tomorrow. But it could be. What are we going to do as we head in that inevitable contact with God as at the end? And we're not ignorant about what the Bible says about such things. In fact, there are people, specifically in Christian scriptures, who knew that for them the end was coming. And so today I'm going to look at four of those very quickly some folks who faced the end and what their perspectives were as they did so. The first place that I want you to turn is Deuteronomy 33. Deuteronomy chapter 33. Grab a Bible. It's the sixth book, or sorry, it's the fifth book in the Bible. It's the fifth book in the Bible. Chapter 33, I do know this, comes after 32. You can find it rather easily. And I'm just going to read a couple of places here from Deuteronomy. And here's the situation. Moses is about to die. You kids, you've heard the story about Moses. You guys know who Moses is. Moses is the one who led the children of Israel out of the promised land, or out of the, the Egypt into eventually the promised land. Except that Moses didn't himself actually get to go. In fact, in Deuteronomy 33, Moses is looking out over the promised land, literally on a mountain, looking and seeing the land that he is not going to get to share in. And here's what it says. Chapter 33, verse 1 says, This is the blessing that Moses, the man of God, pronounced on the Israelites before his death. He said, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned over them from Seir. He shone forth from Mount Paran. He came with myriads of holy ones from the south, from his mountain slopes. Surely it is you who love the people. All the holy ones are in your hand. At your feet they all bow down and from you receive instruction. The law that Moses gave us, the possession of the assembly of Jacob. The point is, is that God is the one who is over this people and controlling them. And Moses is concerned with God watching out for the Israelites. Then I want you to turn to verse 26. And Moses says, There is no one like the God of Jeshurun, who rides on the heavens to help you, and on the clouds in his majesty. The eternal God is your refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. He will drive out your enemy before you, saying, Destroy him. So Israel will live in safety alone, Jacob's spring is secure in the land of grain and new wine where the heavens drop dew. Blessed are you, O Israel. Now the rest of this chapter is all about Moses speaking to the various 12 tribes and saying this is the way that God is watching over you. And this is interesting. Moses is watching out for this people. He's been doing so for 40 years. And now he wants God especially to care for them. And he tells the people, God does care for you. God is going to establish you. God is watching over you. He's the God who controls all things. And he's in control of your destiny. And so Israel, take great hope. Now what's interesting is that Moses, as I said, is about to die. He's going to die. 
and what is on his mind. Notice that Moses is not just crying out to God on behalf of himself. He's not thinking about, should I jump from a plane or not? He's not even reflecting on his own personal past. What Moses is concerned about as he prepares to die is the people of God. What Moses is concerned about is the will of God. What Moses is concerned about is that God works with his people, is trying to accomplish his will, and that the people need to recognize who God is. That's what Moses is thinking about, and Moses is about to leave this world. He's given his whole life to the Lord, and now right here at the end, as he's thinking about the fact that he's going to go and actually meet God again, he had met him once before, he is going to go and meet with God again, and what's on his mind is God's will for God's people, God's nation, the future of God's people. That's interesting. Moses' bucket list. Now, I want you to turn to Acts chapter 6 and 7. We forward a long ways now, past even Jesus, to the life of Stephen. And when I say the name Stephen, most of you would say the martyr, the first martyr. And in fact, he's the first one killed. Kiddos, who was the first one killed? Stephen is the first martyr, the first one killed in the name of Christ. When I say the first one, there were, uh, James the Apostle was probably killed first. But Stephen is the one who's first martyred in this way that there's such a record for. And what happens, in, you read chapter 6, and Stephen himself has gotten himself in trouble because he keeps telling people about Jesus, and the leaders don't like that. And so they finally decide that because he has blasphemed Moses and the law, that they're going to stone him. So they're going to throw rocks at him until he is dead. And because Stephen is the man he is, he stands up and he makes a speech in front of those who are accusing him. And the whole speech is in some ways like Moses' speech. It's all about the children of Israel. It's all about what God has done. And he talks about how God did all these things through Moses and then David and all the history of Israel. And then he gets to the end and he talks specifically about Jesus. And if you look at verse five or 51, I should say, of chapter 7... Stephen finishes his speech like this. It says, You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You have received the law that was put into effect through angels, but have not obeyed it. And so... Stephen is making a pronouncement again about the children of God. In this case, saying to them, you have totally blown it. And even you, you have, in fact, killed the Messiah. And all that God wanted to have happen in his history, all the good things of God, where this should be going down a path where God has reconciled this nation to himself and Israel is this glorious place where God is among them and sir is uh, ruling over them and they're serving him and he's their God and they are his people. Instead, they have killed the prophets. They've ultimately killed Messiah. And here's what Stephen knows. He knows that they are about to kill him too. And what's on his mind? 
I don't see Stephen begging for his life. I don't see him concerned about his worldly possessions. I don't see him concerned about the things that he's going to get accomplished. What Stephen is concerned about is the people of God. So much so is he concerned about the people of God that look at verse 57. It says that this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell at his knees and cried out. And look at what he says. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Which, of course, is exactly what Jesus said when Jesus was on the cross. And Jesus said that about, mainly, his fellow Jews that had put him in the position that he was. And Stephen says that about his fellow Jews who are not acknowledging God and his Messiah the way that he wants them to. And what Stephen is, what's on his heart more than anything else at this moment when he's dying is God's people and God's will and doing everything he can to fulfill God's will in his own life. Turn to Philippians chapter 1. It's between Ephesians and Colossians. Philippians chapter 1. And here's what Paul says in the 15th verse. He says, It's true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. And that's where Paul was. He was in chains. In fact, he was in chains having no idea whether or not he would live through the ordeal. But what does it matter, he says, the important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I'll continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of, Christ, of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. And the fact is, when he uses the word deliverance there, he doesn't know which way this deliverance is going to go. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now as always Christ will be exalted in my body. And look what he says. Whether by life or by death. And so as far as Paul's concerned, he's facing his own death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Then he says, if I'm to go on living in the body... This will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I don't know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I'll remain, and I will continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. Now, Paul doesn't really have a choice here. He's not the one who's going to determine whether he lives or dies. He's not going to say, well, God, take me, and God will, or God, don't, and God won't. And here's what's interesting, too. When Paul says, I'm going to stay here, he's not saying, I'm going to stay here, and everything's just going to be great. Paul says, I'm going to stay here, and when he stays, he's going to get beaten again. 
And when Paul stays, he's going to go to prison again. When Paul stays, he's going to get thrown over the uh, edge of a ship into the sea because they're expecting him to drown. Paul knows that if he stays, it's going to be just one trouble after another. But he stays. And why? Because Paul looks death in the face and knows that his chief concern is the good news of Christ and the work of God and the will of God both in his life and in the church and that's all he really cares about. It's like Paul's bucket list. And then I want you to look at Matthew chapter 26. We know this story so well. We've heard it a million times. Matthew chapter 26. It's Jesus in the garden. Verse 36. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Well, I guess... Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as your will be done. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Could you men not keep watch with me for one hour, he asked Peter? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it's not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. And then there's a third time when it's clear that he's just trying to do God's will. And so here is Jesus, who is absolutely faced with his own death. And it's not just impending, it's not just imminent. He sees it, he understands it, he knows what's going to happen to him. And Jesus faces all of that with agony and he's even tempted to give it up like he he says the body is really weak i do not want to have to go through this jesus is tempted to say to god no i will not do this but he wants simply to do the will of his father and so jesus at the point of thinking about his own Death, and not just his own death, but bearing all the weight of the sins of the world, looks at death and says to God, your will be done. And so Moses, and Stephen, and Paul, and Jesus, they all see and understand that their death is about to occur and what's on their minds. Well, I would sum it up with something like this. With each of these three, or sorry, with each of these, there was a tremendous amount of hopefulness as they looked toward the end, controlled by the Lord. A great deal of trust knowing that as they centered their lives on God's plan and will, they could rest in Him. And what I want to ask today is pretty simple. 
We are all headed for death. We're all eventually going there. There isn't one of us, unless the Lord comes, there is not one of us who will escape this. And what I wanted to know today is, what are we thinking about as we head there? Some of us are closer than others. We think, but we don't know. And so it could be today, it could be tomorrow, it could be the next day that the Lord will call me home. And I'd like to think that between now and the time that happens, whether it's three days or 30 years, that there will be in my life a great deal of hopefulness as I look toward an end controlled by the Lord and a great deal of trust knowing that if I center my life on His plan and will, that I can rest only in Him. And so there are some things here we should be focusing on. Discipleship at the end of life and before it means things like recognition of God's presence and control over all things. And I I would think this would play into who we are. What does this mean if this is the case? I would think it would mean some kind of initial trust because of God's presence and control. Where we say, God, I am trusting in you. But then I think it means this. A call in this trust for us to center our lives on God and His will. What we know is coming at the end should be controlling our present. And so we don't know when it's going to come, but however long it is between now and the end, it seems as though there should be some kind of controlling factor here. Now, I want you to look at your bucket list. And I just want you to ask yourself this. How many things did I put on my bucket list that specifically and directly reflect my desire to do God's will and allow Him to control my life before the end? What is it about God's will that you, want to, that you want to get accomplished before you die. Because it seems pretty silly for me to put all kinds of things on that list that somehow preempt and supplant God's will in my life or even in the lives of others. Someday you're going to meet Him. He wants His will to be done in our world by you. What are we doing in the meantime for that? Because it seems to me that's the most important thing. If I ask Moses, what do you want to do before you die? He's going to say, I want to make sure that Israel is secure. And if I said to Stephen, what do you want to do before they stone you? He's going to say, I want to tell them all one more time about the gospel and I want to pray for their forgiveness. And if I said to Paul, what do you want to have happen? He said, I just want the gospel to be preached. Whether I live or die, I want the gospel to be proclaimed. And if I said to Jesus, what do you want to happen as you die? He would say, I want the sins of the world to be put on me. What is it that you want before you die? Our bucket list it seems to me, needs to reflect the presence of God in our lives, the reality in which we take Him. Some of you know Ray McMillan. Who in here knows Ray? Ray McMillan, some of you do. 
longtime preacher, missionary in Churches of Christ in Western Canada. Ray is now in his retirement years. His son, Steve McMillan, has been preaching at Oak Park for years now. He's about ready to go over to Bow Valley, actually, and be the preacher there. You know what Ray is doing with his retirement years? Some of you do know, because we support him as a missionary. Ray is getting up in years. He is not a young man. He travels back and forth between here and India and ministers with the gospel. That's what he does in his retirement years. I think he's got the right bucket list. But you don't have to have that just as an old man. Some of you might recognize the name Kent Brantley. Do you recognize that name? Dr. Kent Brantley? He was huge in the news a couple of years ago when he contracted Ebola. And he was the U.S. doctor who was a member of the Churches of Christ who went to Abilene Christian University and contracted Ebola but had given his life to God and had gone to Africa to minister as a medical doctor but contracted Ebola himself. He ended up living through it. It was like the first one. It was amazing. He's 33 years old. And I think if you ask him, what do you want to get accomplished, Dr. Brantley, before you die, I don't think he would say anything else other than, I just want to minister to some some sick people in Africa and make sure that they're okay. And he would say that because he believes that that is the will of God for his life and he trusts completely in him. In fact, so completely does he trust in him that there is a final rest that for Brantley or for Ray McMillan or for Jesus Christ or for Paul, or Stephen, or Moses, that when death is imminent for them, even at that point, they are absolutely resting in God. So I'm, I'm not going to collect your bucket list. I'm not going to look. But I like to think that somewhere on your bucket list is there, that there's room for God and His will in your life, and that these things you see as a priority. It seems as though God and his people have done so in the past. I think he's expecting the same kind of commitment and devotion from us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you and praise you for working in our lives the way that you do. You give us opportunities, God, beyond belief. Father, I would pray that here in this culture in which we live, where we have so many things available to us, that rather than just focusing on ourselves and our own achievements, that instead we would focus on your will. And God, I'd pray for each one that between now and the time that we do leave this earth and meet you again face to face, that the things that will be on our bucket list will be your things, your will, and that we will be accomplishing those things for you that need to be done in this life. Thank you for the blessing of your spirit, your son, that makes our uh, opportunity to fulfill those things in our lives for you possible. Bless us that we might work toward that end. It's through Jesus we pray. Amen.